welcome to Hitting Play, the podcast where we review, analyze, and discuss shows, movies, and other curiosities. I am Scott, your host for this episode. This week is a little different, it's going to be just me for this one, but I'm very excited to talk about one of my all-time favorite storylines. It's a storyline that spanned comics, animation, and film for well over three decades. It's the X-Men story known as Days of Future Past written by the great Chris Claremont and John Byrne. What if in the future, sentient machines take over the world? What if there was a way for someone to go back in time to right the wrongs of the future? It's a pretty intriguing story concept, and it may sound like a Terminator ripoff, but keep in mind this predates the Terminator by three years. Funny enough, James Cameron did get sued, but not by Claremont and Byrne or anybody at Marvel, but by the legendary sci-fi writer Harlan Ellison, because some details were, I guess, a little too close to two episodes of The Outer Limits that he wrote. But, one of the co-writers of Days of Future Past, John Byrne, realized, I guess, after the fact, that his story seemed pretty similar to the plot of Day of the Daleks, a Doctor Who episode that aired years earlier. But, yeah, I guess it's all one big circle anyway, because James Cameron then served as a time travel consultant for the X-Men Days of Future Past movie. So I guess sometimes art is, you know, a combination of artist influences, or they just unconsciously rip each other off a little bit, and, you know, sometimes time is a flat circle. It's a line I just made up off the top of my head. You like it? When hearing the title Days of Future Past, no doubt you think of the great 2014 film X-Men Days of Future Past, but the original source material is from the comics. More specifically, Uncanny X-Men number 141, and even if you've never read that, uh, you might be familiar with that iconic cover where Wolverine with a couple of streaks of grey hair is guarding a young girl in front of a giant wanted poster featuring the X-Men's faces. Uh, Over the faces are slain and apprehended as well as X-Men number 142. That's another iconic cover where Wolverine is actually getting killed by a giant robot, a sentinel, blasting him with the palm of its hand. Those came out in January and February 1981. The story goes like this. In the future, all the way in the year 2013, if you can imagine, the world is a mess. The sentinels, these giant robots, have rounded up most mutants and placed them into internment camps. They have been designed to hunt mutants, but they have come to the realization that to achieve their directive of peace, they had to subdue humans as well. And they had pretty much conquered all of North America, and now have their sights set on the world, and a nuclear holocaust looms. Meanwhile, the adult Kitty Pride, she actually goes by Kate Pride now, works for a resistance group of mutants, and they feel that they have pinpointed the one event that sets all of this into motion. It's the assassination of Senator Kelly by Mystique in the year 1980. This event led to a wave of anti-mutant hysteria, the passing of the Mutant Control Act, and the reactivation of the Sentinel program. So while Wolverine and Storm and others, they, they try to buy time by attempting to take out, I guess it's like a Sentinel control center, it's this building, Kate Pride's consciousness is transferred 33 years back in time into the body of herself as a child, when she was a new member of the X-Men. And this transference is done via the powers of Rachel Summers, the future daughter of the now-deceased Cyclops and Jean Grey. 
The Kitty of 1980 is now taken over by the Kate of 2013, and after successfully convincing the X-Men of her mission, they travel to Washington. And during this time, we cut to the future to see that fighting the Sentinels is a futile effort, and one by one, the members of the Resistance are killed, including Wolverine, as I mentioned in that iconic image, just completely being vaporized, somebody previously thought invincible, now getting killed. Back in the past, the X-Men are able to thwart Mystique and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and they convince Senator Kelly that there are mutants who aim to use their powers to serve a noble cause. So at this point, Kate's mind leaves Kitty, and it concludes with the X-Men not really knowing if they successfully altered that dystopian future, maybe they had just set it back. What's notable about this story is that it's very short. It's only two issues. You know, some other storylines, they might take dozens of issues and cross over to a whole bunch of titles, but this is really a concisely told story, thanks to the great writing of Chris Claremont and John Byrne, and enhanced by that iconic art of John Byrne. Now, if you're looking for the original issues of these comics, they are very desirable, especially after the movie came out. It'll probably cost you somewhere in the $150 to $200 range for the set. You know, that's if you're looking for comics in good condition. But if you just want a copy to read for yourself, in 2011, Marvel released a trade paperback featuring issues number 138 to 143 and annual number 4. So that, that will encompass that and some other source material too. That retails for about 20 bucks. But in 2014, they also released a Days of Future Past hardcover. Now, this is thicker. Uh, this is the one that I picked up. It features, along with the Days of Future Past issues, the, shall we say, not as successful sequels, uh, Days of Future Present, Days of Futures Yet to Come, and Wolverine Days of Future Past, among other filler issues. But it's kind of neat to revisit the storyline and see that world from other angles. Uh, that retails for $40, but you can find both of those online much cheaper. So just look around. This story has been told in various forms. The aforementioned comics, a three-episode arc on X-Men the Animated Series, the entire run of the cartoon Wolverine and the X-Men, although this is a very loose adaptation. It's technically not part of that story, but many similar elements do exist. And of course, the 2014 film X-Men Days of Future Past. But for this episode of the podcast, I wanted to go back and examine probably the least known adaptation of the Days of Future Past storyline. It's the last three episodes of season one of X-Men the Animated Series. Now, if you'd like to watch this for yourself and follow along, these episodes are for free on Hulu+. Plus. They also were released on DVD, and they are available to buy on iTunes. As I mentioned, this was a three-episode arc on Fox's 1992 series, X-Men, the animated series. The episodes conclude season one, and they are Days of Future Past Part 1, that aired March 13th, 1992, Days of Future Past Part 2, that aired March 20th, 1992, and The Final Decision, that was the season one finale, and that aired March 27th, 1992. So let's get right into the story of these episodes. We start in the year 2055. And just like in the comics, there's a gray-haired Wolverine, and he's aiding the mutant resistance, trying to smuggle some nondescript device. But here, he and two other mutants are captured by Bishop, a mutant tracker working for the Sentinels, who is a mutant himself. 
And it was an interesting choice to use Bishop here as the main protagonist of this version of the story. In the original comics, as was mentioned, it was Kitty Pride's future mind sent back in time to her young self. In the film, it was Wolverine's mind sent back in time to his, I guess you could call him younger self, although he never really ages. In the animated series, Wolverine and the X-Men, it's Professor X projecting his mind into the past. But here, they use the very new at the time and very popular character Bishop, who was already known as a time traveler in the comics. Plus, Kitty Pride never really appears in this series. She was off the team at the time, and her role as kind of the little sister of the X-Men was already taken by Jubilee. Bishop made his first appearance in the comics in Uncanny X-Men number 282, only a few months before this episode aired. So back in the show, as Bishop brings them to the nearest mutant internment camp, he explains to Wolverine that the Sentinels aren't bad to all mutants, just the rebels. Once he hands over Wolverine and his cohorts, the Sentinels inform Bishop that he's met his quota and he's no longer needed. They even blast his identification card like a uh, credit card being denied. I don't know why the Sentinels would want to get rid of somebody that's been doing a good job for them, but I guess that's their prerogative. So Bishop, too, is imprisoned. They are able to escape, fortunately enough, thanks to Wolverine's cohorts, to other mutants that kind of create a diversion. And Bishop and Wolverine are able to escape to the laboratory of Forge. Now, Forge is a former member of the X-Men whose mutant power is the ability to invent virtually any technological device he wants. He's been associated with the X-Men dating back to the 80s, but many times in this cartoon series, for some reason he's used as a mutant scientist of the future that helps Bishop in his time-traveling endeavors. Really not from that time, but that's mostly where you see him. You see him one other time in the present, a little inconsistent, but it, you know, it's a cartoon. But we can see why Forge is used here, because Bishop then discovers that Forge has built a time-travel device. And I guess this was their writer's way of avoiding a mind transference plot device. It might be a little complicated for younger viewers. And there's no younger bishop in which to place his mind. It predates the time he was born, so you couldn't really use that to effect here. So after inserting that nondescript device that Wolverine was trying to smuggle at the beginning of the episode, the time portal is activated. Forge equips Bishop with what he calls a time transponder, and this is a bracelet computer that will keep him temporarily displaced and pretty much a apple watch because it does other things for him too so at this time sentinels start to blast the lab and forge tells wolverine that he's probably too, a little too old to go back in time and bishop goes back to present day i'm presuming this is 1992 around the time this aired and his mission is to stop the assassination of senator kelly because their theory is that after that takes place the Mutant Registration Act is passed, and the Sentinels are mass-produced. And after rounding up and placing them in internment camps, they turn their attention towards humans and take over all of North America and the world. Pretty much the exact story from the comics. But a little twist here, as Bishop now arrives in present day with amnesia. He knows he has to stop some assassination, he just can't remember the victim for some reason. And he doesn't even remember the assassin. He just kind of remembers that it's one of the X-Men. This is a, an interesting reveal to us. So he steals a bus and he drives it right through the front gate of the X-Mansion and goes in and confronts them. So they settle him down and he kind of convinces everybody. Uh, not Wolverine though. He's not convinced at all that Bishop is somebody from the future. 
Of course, had it been the old Wolverine going back in time, it probably would have been a little easier to convince everybody, but then we wouldn't get to meet Bishop. The characters of Gambit and Rogue walk in a little late to the meeting, I guess, and seeing Gambit, Bishop identifies him as the man that betrays the X-Men, much to everybody's confusion. Another striking image of this storyline is the tombstones of the X-Men. We see that pretty much they've all been killed except for Wolverine, and we see when they were killed, including Jubilee, who died in the year 2010. So rest in peace, Jubilee. Now using Gambit here as the theorized assassin, it was actually a pretty clever incorporation of the X-Trader storyline that was going on in the comics around this time. Gambit was a relatively new character, and he had this cloud of mystery around him. That was kind of the intrigue of fans getting into this character. He really didn't know where he came from, what he's done in his past. Now, Bishop comes from the future in the comics, along with a message from Jean Grey that the X-Men are betrayed by one of their own. Bishop also knows that a man called Witness, or just LeBeau, was the last man to see the X-Men alive. And this was a future Remy LeBeau, a.k.a. Gambit. Of course, in the comics, that was kind of cheaply written away as the Onslaught character, and that's not to get into more confusing nonsense, but it was part of the mind of Magneto, merged together with the dark mind of Professor X and manifested into this crazy being that uh, was extremely strong and powerful. So technically, it was someone from the X-Men that betrayed their own, and Gambit was not this X-Trader. I think a lot of fans were kind of disappointed in the fact that Gambit really didn't have that much of a dark history as was assumed, but I think he's a character that's still pretty popular. Now back in the cartoon, the X-Men wonder if any of them could be the killer, and they speculate who also the victim may be. Because the professor is scheduled to speak at a Senate hearing on mutant rights, he thinks maybe it could even be him that gets killed. Now one of the senators at this hearing is Senator Robert Edward Kelly, and he's a staunch mutant opposer. This is another very similar element to the comics. Kelly made his first appearance in the comics just a few issues before Days of Future Past, Uncanny X-Men number 135. That was July 1980. In the X-Men film franchise, he was in the first film, X-Men, played by Bruce Davison. And in that movie, if you remember, he was artificially mutated by Magneto into this gelatinous, stretchy, blob-like creature, something out of a Mucinex commercial. And he eventually was able to escape and washed up onto a beach like a jellyfish, pretty much, and later died back at the X-Mansion. I suppose they could have still tried to use that character in the movie adaptation of X-Men Days of Future Past, but if they wanted to be consistent, I guess he would have been in his late 20s in 1973, so a little young for somebody to hold that office. Of course, the uh, X-Men film franchise has its inconsistencies, but instead, Mystique's target is Dr. Bolivar Trask, played by the great Peter Dinklage. It really didn't matter who the target was for the storyline, as long as it drew attention to the fact that mutants could be dangerous. It really didn't matter who it was supposed to be. Now back in the cartoon, it's revealed that Nimrod, he's a part of a futuristic superclass of Sentinel, has followed Bishop through the time portal back to present day. And the X-Men and Bishop are confronted by Nimrod, and a fight ensues. It ends when they are able to divide him into pieces, and Bishop destroys his time transponder, sending him back to the future. Now you want to talk about Terminator ripoffs. When Nimrod is broken up into little pieces, 
he kind of congeals like mercury back into a pool of liquid and forms back into his original self, much like T-1000. But I guess all's fair in love and intellectual properties about sentient machines. There's really no reason for Nimrod to be shoehorned into this story, other than serving the purpose of helping Bishop prove to the X-Men that he really is from the future, and explaining to the audience that once an individual's time transponder is destroyed, they are immediately sent back to their original time. However, it is consistent with the comics in the sense that Nimrod is from that Days of Future Past timeline. We don't see him in that timeline until many issues later from the original comics. He's not really part of that original comic story, but he is from that world, so at least that's consistent. But on an interesting side note, those Nimrod class of Super Sentinels are kind of what they are trying to present in X-Men Days of Future Past the movie. At the beginning, those sleek-looking robots that kind of adapt to powers and learn new powers, that's pretty much as close as you're going to get to a film version of this Nimrod character. So back in the cartoon, of course, despite orders to stay back in New York with Bishop and Wolverine while everyone heads to Washington, Gambit decides that he too is going to head to Washington to stop the assassination attempt. He knows somebody did it, he knows it's not him, so he's going to take matters into his own hands. Now it's here in the cartoon that we find out that Mystique, along with the Brotherhood of Evil Mutant members Pyro, Blob, and Avalanche, are the real culprits. This is consistent with the comics in the sense that Mystique is the one that tries to assassinate Senator Kelly, just like also in the movies Mystique is trying to assassinate Trask. But in the comics, she is assisted by the Brotherhood of Evil Mutant members Pyro and Blob, not Avalanche, and in the movie, she works alone. The X-Men try to stop their attack, but Senator Kelly is taken into his office where Mystique, in the form of Gambit, intends to kill him. Why she decided to take the form of Gambit, well, makes it a little easier for the writers, I suppose. So the real Gambit intervenes, and the two Gambits fight while Kelly escapes. Bishop enters and we get that cliched, shoot them, they're the imposter, no, shoot him, type scene. Bishop figures, well, he'll just shoot both, you know, just to be sure. But Rogue is able to knock the blaster out of his hands, which saves the life of both her boyfriend Gambit and her adoptive mother Mystique. Rogue then rips Bishop's transponder from his wrist and crushes it, immediately sending him back to 2055. Rogue starts to feel some sympathy, once Mystique changes back to the form of Rogue's adoptive mother, I guess that's the form she took when she raised her, according to this, and Rogue decides she's going to help her escape to some relative safety outside of the building. Now Mystique reveals here to Rogue that she failed in her mission, and she failed Apocalypse, and that Apocalypse wanted to do this to ensure that the human race got the future that it deserves. Now, the villain Apocalypse is not originally part of this storyline. He really has nothing to do with it or this timeline at all. In fact, he didn't make his full debut in the comics until X-Factor number 6. That's July 1986, so years after. But interestingly, he's popped into all the other adaptations in some small way. In the finale of the cartoon Wolverine and the X-Men, that Days of Future Past-like future, you know, technically isn't an adaptation of this, but it's averted, but instead it ushers in a reign of apocalypse. It's reminiscent of the Age of Apocalypse storyline from the comics, and that's a, that's a whole nother episode. 
And that actually would have been season two of that show if it wasn't canceled. If you've seen the film version of Days of Future Past, we see that Wolverine is successfully able to alter the future, and in a post credit sequence, we see the child, En Sabanur, in ancient Egypt, putting his immense power to use, and he's, he's building these pyramids just by telekinesis alone. So we see that Apocalypse kind of pops up into these, not really even being part of the story, but it's just kind of an interesting thing I noticed. So in the cartoon now, Bishop returns to the year 2055, and he sees that the future is actually not changed. Forge survived that attack that was happening before he left, but Wolverine, I guess we could say he died. His adamantium skeleton is in this giant tube in Forge's laboratory. Of course, I think writers of the comics have explained that, you know, even if there's some small fragment or cell left somewhere on, you know, on him, he can regenerate to his original form in some time, but I think we can assume he's dead in this case. Forge tells Bishop that even though he saved Senator Kelly, his mission was a success in this case, something else must have caused the future to become this way. Now later on in X-Men the Animated Series, we'll see that actually a virus caused this future, and this is reminiscent of the legacy virus that was in the X-Men comics at the time, and here it's cooked up by Apocalypse, it's another long convoluted story, but it cleverly incorporates many of the storylines of the comics into the series. So in that respect, it's actually a good use of all these elements, but here it's not originally part of the Days of Future Past storyline. Now back in the cartoon, in present day, Cyclops, Jean Grey, and Professor X find that Senator Kelly has been kidnapped. They're not sure who did it, but then Professor X notices that his watch had stopped and it was due to it being magnetized. And of course, when something's magnetized in the X-Men, it's gotta be Magneto. And it's funny, I had forgotten about this aspect of the story. It had been a while since I saw these cartoons. But just like in the film adaptation, Mystique is a threat, but Magneto is also himself both a threat and an ally in this story. In the cartoon here, Magneto believes that killing Kelly is actually a major step toward his goal of a world in which mutants rule over humans. This doesn't take place in the comics. In the comics, Magneto is a very old man in the internment camps, and I believe he's in a wheelchair as well. But here in the cartoon, he has Senator Kelly trapped on some boat, and he's about to crush him, but the Sentinels intervene and they kidnap Kelly for themselves. The Sentinels bring Kelly to the secret underground Sentinel facility, which when I say Sentinel facility, I actually mean Master Mold, and Master Mold is actually this a super large sentinel with a giant door on his chest, and he is actually a factory. The sentinels come out of his chest. He's actually a sentient facility. I don't know why they decided to make their factory another sentient creature with devastating power, but they did. And it's here where Kelly meets Bolivar Trask. And Kelly is so impressed with his rescue that he agrees to sign an executive order to get Sentinels mass-produced just as soon as he becomes president. So Trask here got exactly what he wanted, and so he orders a Sentinel to return Kelly, and one of the Sentinels replies, No! Master Mold says that he's giving the orders now, and his plan is to replace the brains of all the world leaders with computers. Okay. So after scanning Gambit's brain back at the X-Mansion, the X-Men find that Henry Peter Gyrick is the man that has control over the Sentinels, and they decide to apprehend him to find the location of the Sentinels' base. I guess Gambit, somewhere in his past, had encountered him, and he agrees to 
let them scan his mind, which is also conveniently hooked up to a monitor so the audience can see as well. The X-Men fly to the Master Mold facility where thousands of Sentinels will await them. Master Mold even explains in this confrontation that he will not destroy them because he does not fear, and he will bring a new order of peace. Now hearing this, Trask realizes he's made a mistake in building these Sentinels in the first place, and decides that he's going to aim a laser at a giant gas main while everyone tries to flee. The Sentinels outside fighting the X-Men, they detect that Master Mold is in danger, and they all flee underground, and the whole facility explodes. The X-Men think that the Sentinels are gone for good, but then all of a sudden, out of a nearby mountain, Master Mold bursts out. And we're talking hundreds and hundreds of feet tall, Master Mold is. However, Professor X is now steering the Blackbird jet stocked with gas and TNT straight towards Master Mold, with Magneto flying close by and providing a force field for him. So the jet now hits Master Mold straight in the chest, just after Xavier ejects, and it makes a huge explosion, destroying Master Mold, or so they think. Later on in the series, we'll find out that its head survives, and it plans to rebuild as well as steal the brain of Professor X. You know, for something that hates humans so much, Master Mold is really fond of brains, really likes human brains. So now we conclude this three-episode arc with a couple of short scenes. We see Senator Kelly, now running for president, is making a speech where he explains that mutants, while sometimes dangerous, yes, are still humans nonetheless, and care must be taken not to oppress those who use their powers for the good of all humanity. This results in the release of Beast, who is actually imprisoned for most of season one of the animated series. There was a mission at a facility early on in the season where he was captured and held in prison. And we finish as Cyclops and Jean Grey enjoy a picnic and speak about their hope for the future. Unbeknownst to them, they're being watched by the character Mr. Sinister, who laughs to himself that he knows actually what the future holds for them. And that brings them into Season 2. So this is a storyline that I've always been very fond of. I'm glad that it's actually out in so many forms. It's kind of neat to see over the years different takes on the same storyline. A lot of similar elements here and there, and some changes. Some have to be changed for the sake of the story, or for the sake of the characters being used in those stories. But just a great tale told altogether. I'm always a sucker for time travel myself, so I always enjoy this. What's interesting is that our main protagonists, in all four adaptations, Shadowcat or Kitty Pride, Bishop, Professor X, Wolverine, they all appeared in the 2014 film X-Men Days of Future Past as that group that helps send Wolverine back in time. Obviously, not a nod to the earlier adaptations. I can't imagine it would be, but just kind of a, a neat thing that all those characters are still present. Well, I wanted to finish this episode with something a little special. This is a real treat, and I'm so excited we were able to get this to work. Joining us on the Hitting Play Hotline, you may know him as a writer, as a publisher, as a narrator. You may know him as the former chairman and president of Marvel Comics. Stan Lee, welcome to Hitting Play. Hello, yes, true believer. Thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Lee. Oh, well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me on your show. Now, I wanted to just ask you about the great comic storyline from Uncanny X-Men, Days of Future Past. I didn't have much to do with those great comic issues, but I was involved in the movie. 
Yeah, and I wanted to ask you about that. I I always enjoy seeing your cameos in the Marvel movies. I, admittedly, I sometimes I get distracted. I'm trying to see whether you're going to pop into a scene or not, or if I missed it. And I was kind of surprised that in the movie X-Men Days of Future Past, you know, you really weren't in there anywhere. I was trying no, no, to I find... I got to interrupt you there. I, I did have a cameo in X-Men Days of Future Past. Oh, really? I See, I can't remember. All right. Picture this. In the not-too-distant future, Sentinels are Oh, taking... no, no, I, sir, I remember the movie. I just don't remember seeing you in it. Oh, you remember those super-strong, changeable Sentinels? They, they copy powers, and then they use the powers against other people, like Sunspot's firepower back at Iceman. Yeah. I was one of those Sentinels. Really? Yes. Aren't they, like, super slim? Like, very, very slim and tall? I worked with a dietitian for probably three months. I've been eating this quinoa. Quinoa. Have you ever had this? <laughs> no, no, I haven't tried it. So you actually were in a suit for this? No, that's all body paint. I told them I was going to go full Rebecca Romaine on this one. Like for motion capture? No, other than a mask, that's all me. Really? Well, I, I could have sworn the other Sentinels then are, are CGI. They were all CGI except me. See, I would have never, ever noticed that. I'm the one in the corner on the side. You just barely hear me say, Excelsior! Yeah, that might have tipped me off if I heard it, but no, I don't I don't remember that at all. I'm sorry. Well, that's a little disappointing to hear. It took about eight weeks to film that scene. Eight weeks? So you were actually involved in all of the fighting? Oh, yeah, all the fight choreography. Wow. Do you remember that scene where one of those Sentinels defeats Iceman? Yes, there's like, uh, he defeats him, and there's like a head made of ice, and then a sentinel's foot, like, pulverizes it, right? That was my foot. <laughs> well, with, in all, with all due respect, Mr. Lee, I don't think that could have been your foot actually pulverizing a piece of ice that big. Oh, no, no, I wasn't able to pulverize the ice. I actually stomped on Sean Ashmore's head in that scene. And that was really Sean Ashmore? The ice was all CGI after the fact, but that's my foot on his head. Really? He kept saying, stop, Mr. Lee, don't, don't really stomp on my head. It was so fun. I kept going until they said cut. I'm not going to ruin a take. That's one thing I'm not going to do, Scott. Oh, no, no, I believe you. I believe you. It's part of movie magic. <laughs> wow, I, well, I guess. Uh, well, just changing topics briefly, did you get to interact with Hugh Jackman on the set of the movie then? Ah, uh, the star of all the X-Men films, Hugh Jackman. Yes, great actor. Hugh Jackman was a great guy. He took me off to the side, he put, put his arm around my shoulder and said, Stan, when an actor is saying stop, you gotta stop. And you see, I, I'm just a writer. I'm a publisher. I didn't know these things. But I take these little pieces of advice every time I'm on a movie set, and that's why my cameos are getting better and better. Oh yes, well, there's, there's no doubting that, Mr. Lee. Well, Mr. Lee, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us. This was, again, a real honor, and thank you so much. Now, is there any closing words you'd like to share with us before we let you go? And also, I played Storm in that movie for three scenes. All right, goodbye. I'm sorry, what? Hello? Okay. Wow. Well, Stan Lee joining us. 
Well, that'll pretty much do it for this episode of Hitting Play. As always, you can email us with your comments, suggestions, your own adaptations of X-Men Days of Future Past, or whatever you got for us at hittingplayshow at gmail.com. Or you can talk to us on Twitter at hittingplay. For those of you that are interested in video games and playthrough videos, please check out Lily's YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash lilypucian22. And you can find her on Twitter at lilypucian22. I'm on Twitter myself. I'm at MC and Friends. You can find me there. And I'm also on Vine. My name is MC and Friends on Vine, and there I do flip page animations and little practical flip page cartoons. You can check my stuff out there. Also, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. It helps us out, and if you do, you will get a shout-out on the show. We try to make uh, little skits and make them creative. They're not just simple shout-outs. You can also tap to rate us five stars right there on our iTunes page. It's a very simple click, and anything you do to help us will be appreciated. Well, I have been Scott, and this has been Hitting Play. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. I'll be back.